It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We were the only company that had all young executives. And I've often thought that that I basically paved the way for Bill Gates and, and, and Steve Jobs and some of those guys, because all of a sudden people said, well, hey, maybe this works. Hello and welcome to Tales of Silicon Valley. First of all, let me thank you all for listening, for reviewing, for recommending, to passing the word to your friends. It's been great. It's made all the work and time and effort gone into the show really worth it. And this is a bonus episode, and it features a full-length interview with Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, the godfather of the video gaming industry. And if you like it, you can hear much, much more on my sister show, Danny in the Valley. But for now, I give you Nolan Bushnell. Enjoy. First of all, thank you. My pleasure. Can we start at the beginning? At the very beginning? Yeah. I was born. <laughs> I was a Mormon boy in Utah, and a magic thing happened to me at Mrs. Cook's third grade class. She assigned one student to present an experiment in science to the rest of the class, and I got the one on electricity. And I put the dry cells together and wound wire around a nail and turned it into an electromagnet and did switches and turned on lights and things like that, and I was hooked. I went home that day and set up a card table in the corner of my bedroom, found every old flashlight, battery, light, piece of wire in the house, and started to tinker and never stopped. So you stayed in Utah? I did for a while. Probably the next pivotal thing is in my tinkering, I had a neighbor who was a ham radio operator. And if you were going to be a total geek in the 50s and 60s, you were a ham radio operator. But he also ran a military surplus business, mail order, and he would bid on stuff. And so, uh, all of a sudden, I had access to stuff. There were these airplane carcass graveyards where old airplanes were being melted down for scrap. But if you snuck in, you could get wire and lights and old radios out of the discarded aircraft. But the reason I bring that the ham radio up is that 
you wanted better radios, better transmitters, and they were expensive. If you divided the cost of the radios that I wanted, uh, the, tech, the technology, by lawnmower money and uh, allowance, you know, I'd get the radios I wanted when I was 35. That was unacceptable. <laughs> and so that triggered the entrepreneurship in which, which I set up a TV repair business. In how, those, how old were you? Ten. In those days, most of the TV failures were bad tubes. Any idiot could take the, t the back off of a TV set and change a bad tube for a good tube. And you, all you had to do is know a little bit about how TVs worked. It wasn't rocket science. And in those days, I added wash, you know, appliance repair. Well, it turns out that if you're a little bit mechanical, you can take washers and dryers apart and see what's broken and replace it and put it back together and it works. <laughs> it was a way that I was making adult kind of revenue as a 10-year-old kid. That's impressive. And what that did is it really insulated this idea that I was not going to work for the man. And so I think that that becomes pretty important later on. What did you study in college? Electrical engineering. How'd you do? I was absolutely last in my class. <laughs> Why? I was always working. I became manager of the games department at the local amusement park. My grades always took a major whack during the spring quarter. And what'd you do there? I started out being just on the midway, selling balls to knock down milk bottles, what have you, for a quarter. That's also instructive. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I think I know why. But we'll get to that. That was kind of my summer job. And the reason I was working there, because sounds like it was working for the man, I actually had a cam the campus company, which was an advertising company for universities, in which I took a large sheet of heavy stock paper sold advertising all around and had a calendar of events in the middle and I would give it away at the beginning of the quarter. And the economics were very simple. I would sell $3,000 worth of ads. It cost me $550 to have them printed. But summers in Utah, you could just spend a lot of money hanging out. And so I decided to get a summer job that was fun, that was not very hard, to keep myself out of harm's way. I'd sell advertising during the day and then work at the amusement park night and then therefore I didn't have an opportunity to spend money. You were the guy giving the people balls to knock down. Correct. And I was so good at it, next season they made me manager of the whole department and so I was, I, I've always said that was my MBA because I had to hire 150 kids and incentivize them and manage labor percentages and merchandise and training and and so were you the guys and kind of step right up yep and then i started to redesign the games the midway games so they'd make more money like how well there was a game called uh, over and under and you had to roll six balls down 
into slots. Yeah. And uh, if you were un- under 11 or over 30, and of course, the one the one slot was right next to the six, and so if you missed the one, it went right, to the six. Right, 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 right. It was a game that took too long, and so I redesigned it in which you had to get three squares, three circles, what have you, with only four balls, and it increased the revenue by almost 40%. Wow. You still remember the figures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduate, and then are you immediately like, I've got to get out of Utah? Absolutely. Semiconductors were just at the becoming important. And everybody knew that semiconductors were coming pretty much from Silicon Valley. And there is an old saying that if you want to be important in the kingdom, you got to send, you got to sit on the right hand of the king. <laughs> and I figured Sil- the Silicon Valley ecosystem was the right hand of the king. So you drove out. Right. I was born in 77. I grew up in San Jose, and actually we grew up across the street from orchards, which are no longer orchards. But what was it when you arrived? Because this is in 60... It was in 68. Literally, Silicon Valley was just starting, but at that time, Silicon Valley was probably 80% prune orchards. Probably for the next 10 years... You never had to buy firewood. You could just go by a place where they were tearing out a, a prune orchard and there'd be a sign saying free wood and you just put it in the back of your car and take it home. Right, right. So you arrive, first job. Ampex. Sign just came down. And I was sad about that. So for those who don't know, what is it? what was Ampex? Ampex was the pioneer in digital recording. They invented slow motion, stop motion, the videotape recorder. They essentially could create a TV station 100% using Ampex port right. parts. So what did you do there? I was in the video file division, and I was the first person to record digital data on videotape with 1 to the minus 26th error rate. At 6 megahertz, 6 megabits a second. Right. Which today sounds silly, but to put it in, con- in perspective, we were working on a terabyte memory that literally used a small warehouse full of equipment for a one terabyte of storage. Oh, how things change. Oh, how things change. <laughs> how do you end up leaving, or what takes you out of Ampex and off to do your own thing? Two things. I played a game called Space War at the University of Utah. Space War is a big deal. Very big deal. It was a game that was programmed on a PDP-1 by a guy named Steve Russell at MIT, graduate student from MIT. And I think it was shipped with almost all of the digital equipment products. If there was a monitor connected to a PDP computer, it was playing Space War. I got a chance to play it and was mesmerized. As manager of the games department, I had an arcade that was reporting to me. I knew, as sure the night the day, that if I put a coin slot on the screen, that it would make money in my arcade. Big money. 
but 25 cents for three minutes of play into a half a million dollar computer, the math didn't work. <laughs> that would be, be a very long payback. <laughs> yeah, so... Because the PDP was, was the, the primary the purpose main, of the... It was a big main point. Yeah. What happened was started working in, at Ampex, and three things happened at the same time. One, I was playing Go with a fellow at Stanford who was working for the Stanford AI project. And after a couple of games, he says, hey, do you want to go play Space War at this AI? I said, whoa, yeah, I haven't played that for years. I played at the university. So I spent the night, a night with him playing Space War and was enamored with it. And Space War was what, just kind of like asteroids? Basically, two rocket ships against each other. At the same time, when you're an engineer, you get these free magazines that are just full of technical gobbledygook. And the cost of semiconductors in a year, they dropped from 250 a chip to 15 cents a chip. And so that's massive drop in the cost of semiconductors. And that was simply because more and more being made, technology is getting better, it's more as long, et cetera. Right. Third thing happened is my project at Ampex caused me to design a little really clunky, cheap computer using these chips. All of a sudden I realized that one, I had the skill to make a computer with these chips. Two, the chips were really simple. And three, I knew a business application that needed to be filled. <laughs> Which goes back to your days at Lagoon. Right. And so I started a paper design that day of how I would do this. My office made at Ampex, I said, let's start a company. We each put in $250. Each. And, uh, so 500 big ones total. 500 big ones. We, we capitalized the company well. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, we had a rocket ship flying on a screen. Then I had a dentist appointment, and I was talking to the dentist, my dentist, about what I was working on. He said, you know, one of my patients is in that business. And I had no idea. He introduced me, and I called him up. He came over and saw the thing. He says, you got to come show it to my company. They said, yeah, let's, let's license this. And so I, uh, I was making $825 a month as an associate engineer. Right. Of course, my house payments were 170 a month. So, Sorry, I'm just processing that for a second. Yeah. I, yeah just, <laughs> and... Uh, I was able to negotiate double my salary plus a company car. Wow. So you, you had arrived. And, and a percentage of the revenue. And so what had you licensed exactly? The game of computer space. Okay. And so dot, 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 what happens? The company was called Money Associates. And after working for them for a year, I realized that they were a bunch of bozos, that they could screw up anything, and that I didn't want to really hang my hat with them, which is actually one of the drivers of Silicon Valley. Almost everybody has worked next to somebody who is a bozo, who has made a lot of money. When it came time to work on the second project, I said, do you want me to get the next project? We have to renegotiate our contract, and I need to have more say in what... 
So you and Nutting part, part ways? We parted ways with a contract, uh, a negotiated contract, to do the second game for them. And I had uh, put my shingle out and I got a contract with Bally to another one. And so I was off. And the plan was that Atari, Syzygy at the time, was going to be a game designer, a studio, if you would, designing games for other people. Your new company. Yeah. Right. You know, I had no money and hadn't heard of venture capital. The idea of going into manufacturing was a little specious and what have you. I had these two contracts, and so I had enough cash flow to hire my first employee, Al Alcorn. And I had heard about a video game company called Magnavox that was displaying their products at the Marriott in Burlingame. And so I had to go up and see it. And I went up to see it, and I thought it was shit. <laughs> you know, but I noticed looking at the other people that were there, and they were kind of having fun with this ping pong type game. It didn't have sound, didn't have score. And so that day happened to be Al Alcorn's first day on the job, and I felt that I needed a simple job for him because we had a driving game. The contract from Bally was a driving game, which was much more complex. Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's, I'm just do simple and so let's fix all the things that were wrong with Odyssey. Right. And as we got that going, it just got more fun and more fun and more fun. And then we... I remember Pong. Yeah. And then we packaged it up and put it on a test and it just knocked the socks off. I mean, it just earned more money. Where did you test it? Andy Capps Tavern in Sunnyvale. A bar? Yeah. Because it, <laughs> it's funny because when I was growing up, we used to always go to this one round table pizza. Mm-hmm. It had like three video games. We'd ask my dad for 50 cents, two right. quarters each. And we all, I was one of four, so we all got we all could basically stay, get our two turns and go, but it was always like every place, this is mid-80s, right? had arcade games. Yep. Why? Was it just because they were such... I mean, because it's, it's an amazing business, isn't it? We sold Pong games for 910 bucks For a big stand-up machine. For a big stand-up machine. And in their lifetime, in coin drop, they'd make twenty to 50,000 bucks. What? Yeah. Wow. So you start selling Pong machines. Did you actually make them? Yeah. How'd you do that? Well, we found a cabinet maker that would do our cabinets. You know, it was basically he could, was doing kitchen cabinets and Pong machines. <laughs> <laughs> And so he'd ship down the cabinets. We bought TVs wholesale, take the, top, the back off, modify them, hook them up. We had dumpsters full of antennas and tuners because we right. didn't use those. And then uh, we created a circuit board, had people stuff them and then test them, put them in together and ship them out. Sounds like you were just doing this kind of on the fly. Like you weren't like a manufacturer per se, at least to start. Well, we were... We started out in the garage shop, 1,000 square feet. And it was a thing where there were two offices in the front and a roll-up 
door in the back. And they were for small businesses. And then uh, we were able to get the, the unit next to us, so we expanded. We doubled our space. And then we just had more demand than we could, and we rented month to month an old abandoned roller skating rink and uh, got up to building 100 units a day, and we were off to the races. Wow. Were you actually on roller skates? They moved some of the machines around on skateboards, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen you referred to many times as like the first kind of t-shirt tycoon. What was the... What was Atari? If you walked into it, I imagine it's not like if you walked into Chase Manhattan. We were always out of money because we were growing, we were profitable. The company always chews up a lot of money, and we were capitalized at $500. (laughs) And and though we had some royalties and we had some contract income, we were always out of money. So we always looked half-assed. For example... When we'd hire somebody, he said, you get to buy your own desk and your own chair. We'll pay for it, but it can't be better than mine. My desk was this old, crappy school desk. Not a school desk, but it was it was desk, but it had green linoleum on the top, and it was a blonde thing, and it just looked horrible. Very 70s. Very 70s. And so I'd say, you can't have a nicer desk than me. And so... Literally, we would probably end up spending $20 a a person for a desk and a chair. But they were all mismatched. It was, you know, there was no thing. And when the company got more successful, my assistant kept saying, you got to get rid of that desk, Nolan. And I said, no, it's my lucky desk. We're going to keep it, you know. And I was out working on on a... uh, a couple of contracts and I was out of the office for a couple of weeks. When I came back, she'd taken my desk, had it stripped, stained, the green linoleum replaced with good black formica. I mean, it looked like a great desk. Right. (laughs) She's still lucky. (laughs) That's great, kid. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
So Pong takes off, but you say you're still hand-to-mouth. What changes? What's the turning point for Atari where you really took off? In a funny way, I think that it never really changed from being hand-to-mouth. It's so funny because at least growing up, Atari was this huge presence in every person's or every family's life. Right. Well, see, there was time before Warner and time after. And we were hand-to-mouth. And early on, we had competition, a lot of competition, from people that had real factories and real processes and real accounts receivable. And, you know, we were always sort of making it up as we go along. In some ways, it was very cash efficient, but it was not always efficient because we didn't have our shit together. You know, we were just making it up and learning. Our core skill was innovation. Everybody else had us outgunned. They could build better, they could build efficiently, they could build cheaply, they had factories, they had processes and everything like that. But we could design new stuff. And once Pong had sort of run its course, then we came into our four, in which now we were doing, we did space race and we did you know, Quadrapong, we did Gotcha, and we did, you know, we, we innovated. And, and slowly but surely, innovation won the game. We started building home games, Pong, and then we decided we needed to do a cartridge-based game, which was the Atari, the 2600. But we knew that we didn't have enough cash. There was just not enough to do that. And so we were planning to take the company public. Well... Concomitantly, the the stock market kind of went to sleep. You know, it wasn't yeah. going to work. And so we wanted to get a industrial investor, and we talked to Warner, and they said, let's buy the whole company. And I was kind of tired, you know, because we didn't have enough cash for... Even though you had kind of machines in every bar and you're this kind of ubiquitous company, you're the first real video game company. Yeah, we just didn't have any cash. How did you end up selling to Warner? We needed money for the 2600. We had uh, raised a little bit of venture capital by then, and one of our venture capitalists introduced us to Warner. We flew to New York, and they gave a pitch to buy the whole company. Right. And were you immediately like, yeah, that's a I good said, idea? yeah. Were you just exhausted? I was tired. Right. And plus, I was a farm boy from Utah, and uh, all of a sudden I was going to have more money than I'd ever dreamed of. How much money were we going to have? $26 million, which sounds like nothing now. But I mean, it's kind of, it sounds like nothing, but still. In those days, $26 million is probably equivalent to a couple hundred million today. Yeah. Wow, and you're what, 30? 32. What's yeah. not to like? What's not to like. And so they bought it and you stayed? Yeah, for two years. But can you talk about the kind of the culture of what Atari, because I think that's also one of the things that's so interesting about Atari is it does feel like it was kind of a model for a lot of the kind of the culture that has come since in terms of how you build a company and kind of giving people freedom and kind of the whole environment. Well, understand that this was during the age of Aquarius. The hippie revolution was just hate ashbury away. All of us had our hippie outfits, and we'd go up and be posers on weekends. 
<laughs> tight eyes, bell bottoms. You know, you had the whole get up as well. Absolutely. We were the only company that had all young executives, and I've often thought that that I basically paved the way for Bill Gates and and, and Steve Jobs and some of those guys. Because all of a sudden, people said, "Well, hey, maybe this works." But and were you show? Were you walking around in a suit? Oh yeah. Okay, so you were checking that box. I was checking that box. Because I was younger than everybody else, I had, I don't want to say an inferiority complex, but I was a little, I was always a little bit feeling like maybe somebody else knew what they were doing because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. Right, (laughs) right. But we wanted to create a, a meritocracy. And in some ways, if your center of gravity is a meritocracy, a lot of things like sex and age discrimination, things like that, just just go for merit. Right. And so that was one thing we did. And then it also says, get rid of process, you know, get rid of politics, get, you know, and so treat people like adults. We didn't care when you showed up, if you showed up, get your job done, then we're happy. And that leads to, we don't care what you wear. You know, come in a bathing suit, you know, start work at three, get, you know, stay to work until midnight, we don't care. You know, Steve Jobs worked for me, and it was taken to Apple. And pretty soon, you know, between Apple and Atari and some of those, we were employing probably 20% of Silicon Valley, and they were saying, shit, if it's working there, and so it kind of... So... Can you talk about Jobs? Like, how did he end up there? And do you remember meeting him? And what? I mean, did you see something in him, or was he just yet another kind of unwashed techie who was? He started out as an unwashed techie. I actually didn't hire him. You know, Alcorn did. But my first interaction with with him was I had an open door policy, and he came into my office one time and he says, "Your company's going to fail unless you your people know how to can learn how to solder." He had a circuit board, and he says, cold solder joint, bad solder joint, wicked solder joint. And I said, boy, you're right. That, that, those are really crappy. And, he, and I said, why don't you teach everybody how to solder? How old was he then? 19. So he was this kind of solder trainer all of a sudden. He came on as a technician. A lot of people don't understand the power of being a passionate person. You know, and Steve, if anything, was extremely passionate about, I mean, he had one speed, full on. I've often thought that probably led to his health problems to a certain extent. How long was he there and what role did he play? He was there for probably a year and a half. And then he wanted to go to India. And so we paid for his ticket. Oh, you paid for his ticket? (laughs) <laughs> in a roundabout way. Right. We had a problem that needed solutions in Germany. The German distributor was always complaining about one thing or another. And, and so we thought jobs could probably fix that. Not so much anybody, any of the technicians could have gotten his problem solved, but I thought that they'll never want Steve to come there again. <laughs> so we paid for his ticket to Europe. And, and instead of the return, he could go from Germany to right. India. And was the idea that he was just going to come back at some point, or you didn't know? or Didn't know. 
<laughs> and then he, he was there, I think he was in India for three or four months, got a blood disease, came home, got better, came back to work for Atari for a little while. He had a blood disease? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Then he came back, worked for you. I think in Adam's book, he talked about breakout. Yeah. I spent a lot of time of my, ch- a lot of hours of my childhood playing breakout. Yeah. Could you talk about how that came about and what they, what he did there? We believed in kind of sharing the wealth with the people who made it happen. We considered all our engineers to be rock stars. And so they could kind of bid on the projects they wanted. Nobody wanted to break out. Why? The common wisdom was that ball and paddle games were over. Because the industry had moved on and there's all these cool games now. Right. Right. I designed Breakout conceptually. And I just knew that it was the right kind of game for the phase. And so I had jobs do it. But I knew that it was actually going to be Wozniak. So what was Wozniak? Was he just orbiting? I put jobs on, on the night shift. Why? Which, well, because he was kind of disruptive. And, was he just a pain in the ass, basically? Just kind of a pain in the ass. But right. I liked him. And I was a little mercenary in that I knew that uh, if I put him on the night shift, that Waz would be there and he'd be playing games and helping. And so I'd sort of have two Steves for the price of one. <laughs> and, and it worked out as true. And, and they knocked it out and did a really good job. And that was color as well, right? Which was a thing. No. It was not. <laughs> well, it was what we called faux color. Right. We would put strips of cellophane on the screen. That's not true. It's very true. Really? <laughs> well, a black and white TV set at the time was about 80 bucks. Yep. A color screen was almost 400 And a color TV in the video game environment would fail in about a year. Going back to Warner, they fly you out on the nice private jet. Oh, yeah. You know, the private jet stopped in Sun Valley to pick up Clint Eastwood, and he was there with Sandra Locke. And you guys were just a couple... We were just a bunch of hicks. (laughs) Why'd you stay? If you have $26 million, was it like, all right, I'm going to go live the life? You don't need to quit in order to live life. I traveled around and did various things, and you know, I just didn't feel like I needed to quit, but I didn't work very hard either. <laughs> so, Atari at one point was making more money than all of Hollywood studios combined. That's true. When was that? Was that the 2600 or was that the. 2600. That was in. 1984. So after you sold... After I sold. And then they just started wrapping up. Well, the thing that's frustrating to me is they did no innovation. They populated the company with record executives, and so they didn't realize they were also in the record player business. And so their focus were on cartridges not on improving the technology. Right. And that's why the 
industry really imploded for a while because they hadn't kept the, the technology get, getting better. But did you have a moment where you're like, oh my God, I've created this entire industry that is bigger than the industry everybody knows best in the world? Kind of, but you know, I, I'm a guy who doesn't like to live in the rearview mirror. Mm. And I was working on Chuck E. Cheese at the time and having a great time. Chuck E. Cheese was awesome. I actually made more money personally in Chuck E. Cheese than I did. Really? Yeah. Really? I was smarter. How did you make the money? Was it just you sold when you sold it, or I can remember getting a fifteen million dollar check in the mail. I took the green shoe of one of the offerings. Do you know the green shoe? It's an underwriter over allotment, and they sold fifteen million dollars worth of my personal stock. So what did you do with all that money? Oh, I pissed it away. Various here, you know. But you lived well too, right? I mean, you had. I had Learjet and big house and, you know, I house in Paris and, you know, Aspen condo and all that. You know, my life's been great. I've got eight kids. You have eight kids. That's very Mormon of you. Yeah, well, that's, people say that. <laughs> but my wife's also Catholic, so there's... Right, no, right, 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 right. But, you know, we're both failed in our respective religions, but... Uh, <laughs> And in terms of the um, culture, I mean, do you feel, I mean, it does feel just reading and just talking with you, it does feel that you kind of, you helped set some of that groundwork to, for what we recognize even today in terms of that kind of, I don't know if you'd call it the hacker ethos or just the kind of yeah. how Silicon Valley works. Yes. And did you remain in touch with jobs? Yeah. Did you invest? No, I didn't. In fact, I had the opportunity of being the first investor in an Apple. And I turned down a third of Apple computer for $50,000. <laughs> I regret it. Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. Why, do you remember why? I didn't think that Steve was a, a good chief, chief executive. I, I, and I think that he wasn't. I think you, I mean, you were proven right in that sense. Yeah. But Steve, was he still working at Atari at that time, or had he had already left? He'd left a long time. Right. And Waz never worked for you? No. But he was just Steve's subcontractor? Precisely. Because I read that, that story about the breakout thing where you paid him however many... 5000 bucks. Paid him 5000 bucks to basically build breakout over a weekend. Right. Which was kind of a huge, superhuman feat. Superhuman. But Waz is effectively kind of otherworldly genius in terms of the stuff he can... He's a savant. And you paid Jobs 5000 bucks, Right. And Jobs paid was 500 <laughs> A glimpse of the future. You do Atari, you leave, and you tried a bunch of other stuff. A lot of it was kind of light years ahead of... It was all right, but it was all just like kind of bleeding edge stuff. Somewhat true, but... You know, I mean, if you... I... Started the first automobile navigation software company. You know, I did the first online ordering system using laser discs and kiosks. So in some ways, I can't say that I did Amazon. Actually, had I not sold to Warner, I might have owned the internet. Do tell. <laughs> we were going to do a game network over telephone lines and modems. Atari had the fastest, lowest latency modems in the world. You guys we, had modems? 
Yeah, so using telephone lines. I guess I don't understand why you would have even developed modems back then. Be- because we wanted to do an online tel- you know, okay. network. I can remember sitting in the conference room asking, are people, when they're playing each other across the telephone lines, are they going to want to talk? And they said, well, we don't have the bandwidth to talk, but maybe, maybe they could type. I said, oh, nobody types. <laughs> but the IP stack for our network, we were going to have closets of modems in every area code. So it was a free call. All right, because local calls are free. Then we were going to link the closets with T1 lines. The protocol that we designed was identical to the IP stack of the internet. We were going to go live in 1979. And Warner canceled the whole thing. I'm convinced that if we'd have done the game network, that it would have morphed into the internet. Did you know you were doing that at the time? Kind of. Well, no. I don't know. I always knew that we were doing something kind of important, but we were so busy solving problems every day that it was hard to step back and look at the big picture of what we were really doing other than surviving that day. Right. What was your worst day of work? When I had to fire an engineer who had been great, but was just being disruptive and bad because his wife had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. That's pretty tough. The kind of the difficult part of startups and doing this, it's actually, it sounds like it's quite lonely, a lot of responsibility and, and very stressful. And a lot of, there's a lot of shitty days mixed yeah. in with the amazing triumphs. Yeah. I think that, that uh, any organization, you've signed up for the whole package. You know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you would like it to have it all be good, but, it's, but there's the human condition. Yeah. One of the other things I'm trying to get to is why Silicon Valley? Why, why has it all happened there? I think the hippie movement and sort of the, the whole kind of countercultural vibes that San Francisco and, and Marin County did. It was people have joked and said somebody took the United States and shook it a little bit, and everybody, everybody that was a little loose fell to California. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite good. I like that. <laughs> and, and it feels right somehow. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And, and I think that um, when you have people doing interesting things, they attract other people who are interested in doing interesting things. The human being is, in fact, a pack animal. I think that there is a, there's some tribes, and there's kind of the, Hollywood tribe, and there's kind of, in New York, there's a literary tribe. Mm. And of course, in Washington, D.C., there's Potomac Fever and the political tribe. Silicon Valley represented this countercultural tribe that had various spawns of uh, the rock music tribe and the countercultural sort of you know, whole earth catalog tribe, and then there was the hard tech tribe. They tend to be self-reinforcing. How important were drugs, or not really? Were they impediment, or is it just kind of something that was in the ether? Innovation is about rule breaking. If you were happy with the status quo, 
you don't break rules, and therefore you don't innovate. Yeah. <laughs> 2019, here we are. Do you despair of where we are? Are you hopeful? Are you pessimistic? I'm so excited about what's going on right now. What are you doing? What is X2? Okay, I always like to live on boundaries. Like when two tectonic plates collide, you get earthquakes and volcanoes. Right now, there's a interesting convergence of games, movies, AI, smart speakers, networks, that we have tools today that are truly remarkable. And you can achieve things that are wonderful. For example, right now we're doing a series of board games that are Amazon Echo mediated. We've got a whodunit called Saint Noir in which you are the detective and you're going around this town interviewing suspects. And the suspects answer you through Echo and they're answering you and the suspects have to tell the truth unless they're the perp and then they can lie to you. Then we're working on a project for a made-for-TV movie in which we break the fourth wall and have Amazon Echo be a character in the show. So we can program Echo to respond to what's going on on the screen and, and be a advisor, a narrator, a yenta, a, a pain in the ass, what have you. It's just really cool stuff. Like I've got five, five of my boys, they're all in some level of technology. I've got one son who's doing a virtual reality escape room that's reskinnable and he's 24 years old and he has already sold one company and he's got a game right now that is, it's like Pong. It's out earning every other game on the Midway. On the Midway? <laughs> Have you been to Two Bit Circus? No. Two Bit Circus is 50,000 square feet in downtown LA. Okay. Of a amusement park bar and restaurant. Think of it as Dave and Buster's on steroids. Yep. That's my other son. That's Brent. And uh, Wyatt, which is my youngest son, has two of his games in there. Both of them are the number one earners, which translated, I think he's got a couple of projects that are that right now are worth 50 80 million bucks now he's doing this escape escape room he thinks he can reskin and do you know that there are 800 escape rooms in the united states right now i did not know that i mean neither did i and he says that the average escape room has a life cycle of between four and ten months and that now he can reskin with software and get a percentage of the revenue. He's really got a good business plan. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is a kid who started his business the day he got out of high school. I would say the day he graduated from high school, except he didn't. He didn't graduate? No. One day he came back and he said, I'm not going to school today. It's just a waste of my time. Because his brothers were all in tech, right. he'd been programming some, from the time he was 10. I had a chance to work for Google when he was a freshman in college, in high school. <laughs> as you do, as one does. Just a couple more things. You also had a personal robot company? Yes. That appears to be on the horizon, much closer on the horizon now. 
Yeah. You did in-car navigation in the mid-90s. Right. Video games. Right. Chuck E. Cheese, which for our British listeners is kind of like a video game kind of... I don't know it what... Was, it was, it was, like it was a video an arcade-supported, you know, that disguised itself as a pizza parlor. Exactly. They also had the animatronic giant mouse and it's his friends singing songs, and it was an amazing place. Yeah. So I had a lot of my birthdays there. I, did, I, have a, I had a toy company for a while that, that was a total mistake, and then I tried to do a Chuck E. Cheese again called U-Wink, in which every table had a touchscreen ordering system and all that. Talk about bad timing. Each table costs us about 15,000 bucks. Two years later, I could have done the whole thing with a $400 iPad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there one or two technologies or things that you think are, that you're most excited about that you think will be reality in five or 10 years now that would make us today think like, no way, oh my God, or that's amazing? I'm on the board of directors of a self-driving automobile company, software got the best software stick out there. A lot of people don't realize it, but uh, auto drive cars are more important than world peace because more people are killed on highway accidents than there are in any of the wars. And the wonderful thing about self-driving cars is it basically changes the economics of transportation in some wonderful ways. Think of the number of auto body shops that'll go out of business. Think of the gas insurance adjustments. Huh? Uh, gas stations. Well, think about highway patrol. No more need. What about uh, parking lots? All of a sudden, they become redundant. And now you're going to be able to pave over every street, you know, because you can put all the transportation underground, and so your typical city becomes a park without all the visual clutter of parked cars everywhere. When you were back at it, when you were a carnival barker, did you have like a go-to like uh, saying to get people to come in? Oh, I would just basically say, you can do it. You can win. This is fun. The main obstacle with any of these things is the self-confidence of the player. And an awful lot of life success is about the self-confidence because if you don't have the confidence of succeeding, you don't have the confidence to try. And if you don't try, you definitely fail. There is no try, there is only do, yeah. as Yoda would say. Yep. <laughs> and with Jobs, what, why do you think he was so successful? Steve Jobs had one rising you know, belief structure that turned, out to be, that turned out to be very right. And that was ease of use of normal people. And so there were MP3 players all over the place, but they took a level of tech, and they, you had to be a techie to do it. You had to take your CDs, you had to rip them, and then you'd download it, and it was a problem. And Jobs always says, let's make it easy to use and transparent. And so if you look at the iPod, it fulfilled that role. The other thing that, in order to understand Steve Jobs' genius, and not enough people give this part credit, but he was a master negotiator. You've heard about the, the Jobs derangement, derangement syndrome where he could convince you, where 
Gates would say, I, I don't like to have a one-on-one -on -one with Steve. I always end up agreeing to do something that's not in my own best interest. And did you see that back then, back in the day? Yeah, very good. Even when he was showing up unwashed and... Well, see, understand that Steve always had a somewhat missionary zeal about him. He believed whatever he believed so thoroughly that it was almost like defying gravity to disagree with him. Yeah, I was, I was reading some, I think it might have been an Adam's book. He was on some, he'd found some diet, some kind of starvation diet, and he ended up passing out at oh. Atari. Oh yeah, I mean, he was always on some weird shit. Did you ever see him pass out at work? No, right. but I do know he would have, he had a futon under his desk. He would very often do all-nighters. Yeah, he was a hard worker, sounds like. Very hard worker. Right. One speed, all on. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to Tales of Silicon Valley right now on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.